You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. All right, so it's been a little while, but we are still in Romans. We'll be in Romans forever. Um, Romans 8, near the end, 33, we'll be looking at today through uh, 9, verses 1 through 5. And we ended uh, last time in, in Romans with the chain of events that Paul had gave us, and it was concerning the, the salvation. And we saw how that chain of events was unbreakable and inevitable. And Paul described each link connected with the prior link without any doubt. And that's how I ended that last sermon, that Paul saying the ultimate proof that God will not be swayed in his support for us is seen in his willingness to put Christ on, on the cross for our sakes. And Paul's asking us to consider those implications of what we've already known to be true, that the Father took the thing most precious to Him, His only begotten Son. He delivered Him over to, this, to die this horrible death, death something that had been uh, planned on before the foundations of the world. And He did this to bring us to Him, having already foreknown us, predestined us to receive his grace. And so I had said, how ridiculous then would it be to consider that after God had done all of this stuff, such extreme things for our sake, that he would then allow his plan to fall short and fail in the end. So it was a a matter of a chain of events of salvation, but also this assurance in our salvation that we are saved, that if you've experienced that first link, then we will get to that final link, that glorification. So uh, we're going to get into these words like that foreknown, predestined, the elect, things like that, things that become very controversial, (laughs) as I've mentioned, uh, between two groups of people, but I'm going to try to do my best to, to... to make it simplistic for us all. So we'll start at 33, uh, go through 35, and move on from there, where it says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So Paul, he's saying, first off here, remember, God is the one 
who has declared you justified. He, he's the judge, and if the judge has already acquitted you of sin, then he's not going to entertain any new arguments from any type of prosecutor. And we, we hear about the devil being the prosecutor, the great, uh, uh, the, the one who wants to, we, we hear, you hear these stories of the devil goes to the courtroom and stuff of heaven and is accusing you, the accusing the brethren and things like that. Um, and whether it's the devil or other people or even your own conscience trying to uh, prosecute you, uh, God is the judge. He has no time to entertain any new arguments. You have been found justified because you're in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have convictions. Don't get those confused. You will be convicted, and that's when you, you pray to the Lord on those things. But he's saying, how can you be condemned for sin when the one with the power to condemn has already taken that condemnation for you? Jesus has taken that. And he now sits at the right hand of God as your advocate because he's interceding for us, he says. Therefore, there's no sin that you commit, no matter how grievous, that's going to separate you from the love of God. Okay, And then Paul asks in 35, who else might separate us from the love of God? Can some tribulation or distress separate you? Now, tribulation is an external threat to peace. And distress is a personal difficulty. All right. What about persecution that would lead you to deny Christ like Peter did. I mean, there's all these all these words, there's examples that we have, okay? There's famine that could cause us to steal or turn our, bo- our back on God in anger. And there's nakedness, he says, and that's a reference to public shame. Um, and then uh, peril or physical violence or sword, which is execution. All right? If you think about it and you look back, there's, these, are these, these seven things that Paul lists are an actual inventory of what Jesus had experienced on the way to the cross. Okay? He endured all these things for our sake. You remember in Hebrews that we have this great high priest who can sympathize with us in any manner, right? He's been through everything. He's experienced the human life. He's experienced this... Uh, list of things, everything that we could go through and experience and and have in this life, he has and he is able to sympathize with us and therefore that's why he can intercede for us as well. So Paul has this subtle point is that whatever, whatever it may be that has this potential to cause us to act in any any way that could seem unfaithful or is an unfaithful way, Christ has already walked those steps for us. And he was faithful all the way to death. And since we have been credited with Christ's righteousness, with his perfect life, by faith, then it doesn't matter what we are able to endure, or it matters not what we are able to endure in the face of such things. We can get through these. And Paul explains this moment And we're not there yet, but he explains it in 37 when he says, in all these things, we are overwhelmingly uh, or or we overwhelmingly conquer 
through Jesus. Another, uh, it says we are more than conquerors. And I think we tend, in this day and age, we will rip uh, texts out of the Bible and, and sort of uh, misapply them or misinterpret them. And so people will say that uh, you can do this because uh, you're more than a conqueror uh, because you're a Christian. But he's saying in this context is that Jesus conquered all these things in his life. And therefore, since you have been credited with his success, you cannot be defeated by them. You are overwhelmingly conquer because of Christ, because in Christ, because of him, he's done it. It goes on then in 36 um, through 39, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know how more simple it can get. It's more plain. I mean, you go from where we were at last time to right here, and then I hear people who don't believe in the assur- like assurance of faith and salvation and say, There's nothing that's going to take you away from Christ except for you. But here it even says there's nothing. It says nothing else in creation. I believe it's counting yourself (laughs) as well that here, all these things, that Paul says he has a full conviction, full confidence that we cannot be separated from God. For any reason, by anything. And to, to ensure that we understand that this, he adds a series of all these forces. And these forces represent the extremities of this life, you know, and, and, and the earth. And he introduces, uh, uh, he introduced with the, a pair, the first pair is death or life. Neither death nor life. Nothing on this side of the grave or on the other side of the grave holds the power to separate us from the love of God. So more specifically, no spiritual power or earthly power, no present existence or future existence, because no power is greater than God. So we can't go high enough to be out of his reach. You can't go deep enough to hide from his love. Nothing in creation is capable of coming between us and the Lord who has saved us and promised us glory in the day to come. So, you know, I want to take a moment to look at verse 36, uh, which is from Psalm 44. Um, And you can write that down and look at it all later. But the psalmist declared, and he's speaking as Israel, that God has allowed his children to be killed by their enemies. And he uses that phrase, phrase all day long, that uh, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. And he's lamenting Israel's difficult circumstances, suffering under God's judgment at that time. So Israel is, has known many generations of such suffering, 
as consequences for having violated the old covenant. All right? They've been overrun by their enemies. They've been exiled. They've been persecuted and killed. And as the psalmist remarks, these things come at the hand of God as a result of his will for his people. So Paul's point in quoting the psalm was to demonstrate that throughout history, God's people have been made to suffer at times. You know, it's not all rainbows, unicorns, things like that. You know, like we will suffer. Therefore, nothing that happens to us in this life, not even death itself, is a threat to God's plan for us, right? So just as our own life has these twists and turns, these trials, these disappointments, we can't judge God's faithfulness to us until you see how it ends, because you'll see, then you'll see how it ends, and you know he's been faithful. So the psalmist declares with a confidence that the Lord's loving kindness would prevail in the end. All right, so before Paul even introduces the subject of his next discussion, then he affirms that he's telling the truth. He says, I am telling the truth and to claim uh, to personal honesty. So Paul was looked upon by the Jews, as, by a lot of the Jews as an enemy. He was a traitor. He wants them to know that he cares for them, that in Christ, in my conscience, I am in union with Christ. I declare him as my witness uh, and my life. And he's calling on Christ to witness the honesty of his claim. And this is how verse nine or chapter nine starts. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience hears me or bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So he says, in the Holy Spirit here, a witness in the Holy Spirit, he's speaking the truth. And the Holy Spirit is controlling his conscience through the illumination of the word. So Paul calls two witnesses, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And he, he says that he has this this. Uh, unceasing anguish or this grief. And this is how Paul really feels about his Jewish brethren. And this is a Christ-like love. And I need to bring out here that Paul's grief is not for those who, who have died, but the, for those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus. And, you know, when he says, I, I wish I could be accursed for them, he's pointing out, too, that they have been accursed because uh, they have rejected the Messiah that was sent to them. Uh, you know, Jesus even cursed the fig tree, which I believe was a, a, a symbolism for, for Israel at that time. That whole generation was going to, to pay the price for this rejection. <clears throat> so um, he, Paul feels this in such a way, though, that he says, he, he, hey, I... Uh, would I be, 
Does he really mean this, though? I wish he, he wished he could be accursed and cut off from Christ in order to them to be saved. But you have to notice what he says. He says, says he could wish. He doesn't say that he does wish, right? For I could wish that myself. This is actually a type of structure in writing to say that it's impossible for this to happen. It's impossible because, as we've already seen, nothing separates us from Jesus. And he's speaking of these physical descendants of Abraham because he says, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So these were Paul's brethren under the old covenant system. These are, uh, they're under the Mosaic law. They have rejected the gospel. But Paul wants them to know that he's not their enemy. He cares for them deeply. Their rejection of Christ has caused him great pain. So notice that all these privileges of Israel in verse 5 and verse 4 are things that Paul has been saying in Romans 4 through 8 belong to, belong to the Messiah, through the Messiah. Okay, All these things belong now to the church. So the name Israelite was a name of dignity. Jacob was called Israel, which means prince of God. He then speaks of adoption, which we've already discussed too. And he said in 823 that they were waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. So the church was inheriting these privileges in Christ that originally were Israel's. And then he uses that phrase, and the glory, that points to God's Shekinah glory revealed among them as the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, as the majesty that filled the tabernacle and the temple at their dedication. And it was also the radiance that crowned Moses' face as he left God's presence as well. And it indicated to them God's presence. So going back in Romans, in 5.2, Paul said of the church, we exult in hope of the glory of God. And then in 8.30, he said, for those whom he foreknew, he also glorified. And then here, he's talking about these, the, all these things, and he mentions the covenants. Now, some manuscripts have a singular here. It says the covenant, but most have the plural. But it refers to Abrahamic, uh, Davidic, Mosaic, and the new covenant, which were all given to Israel. So all, all who have faith in Messiah receive the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? The new covenant was given to Israel and received by the church at Pentecost. So the church has inherited all these things. And he said, the giving of the law. Only Israel had God's law. But it is the church that God's Torah uh, that that has God's Torah written on their heart. The worship or the temple services—that's the t- totality of worship in the temple that is intended there. And they had that magnificent ceremony of all the the uh, Levitical uh, priests. It was Levitical cultists, is what it was called. And day after day, these had these priests in their garments. They carried out their ministries. And then on the day um, that the Day of Atonement came, the, the garments um, of glory and beauty and all the other things that, that made for the sacrifices, all these things um, on this day were designed to teach all these things, right? They were designed to teach Israel 
that there was coming uh, a, an actual person, someone who would fulfill all of this. And all of it would be done away with. And the time would come when we would worship God in spirit and in truth. So though the nations around them would, had worshipped gods of stone and wood and metal, Israel worshipped the God of glory who revealed himself among them and who even dwelled in their midst. And it was a, a privilege to know this God and to worship him. So Israel had the type. Right? But the church has the anti-type, which is Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. And so it's Israel to the church. He's saying, and he's got that phrase, and the promises. And it was the messianic promises. Those were given to Israel. And in Christ, they belong to the church. And who, who the fathers, he mentions, a godly heritage. Abraham is our father through faith in Jesus. And then he, he ends this part in from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. And Paul says that Christ came to the Jewish people. He was their Messiah. Uh, and it, it wasn't, it's not just the fathers. It was the Israelites. Christ was born a Jew. And in him, all of God's promises to Israel had reached their consummation, that Jesus took on flesh, entered into that old age, into the old covenant age. The most, under, he was born under law to inaugurate this new covenant and this new age to come. So he concludes that all by stating that Christ is God over all. And there he is clearly making a claim that Jesus is God. He's calling Jesus God. And this is where we're going to end because it starts, it, we have to like, I just want to go slow on Romans 9 is, is a difficult one, 10 and 11 as well. But um, just remember, as we go on, he's been talking, he's talking about Israel here, okay? And then, so, but just as Romans 1, uh, 3 and 4, it, it stands at the, at the beginning of Romans uh, 1 through 8. It, it, it's proclaiming the deity of Christ, uh, then, then Romans 9, 5 here stands in this similar relationship uh, for 9 through 11, that the Messiah is the sovereign Lord, their covenant God, and it's a, they have rejected him. So he's g- going to plead to them um, and because their arguments are going to be, uh, well, God's promises have failed. He's, you know, all this stuff, and he's going to say, no, 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 and he's going to show them the reasons why. 